Well, good morning, Genesis House. Uh, let's stand and read the Word of God. We're going to look, do Luke 14, starting at verse 15. Luke 14, starting at verse 15. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent a slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look, look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to the slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and there still is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges, and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word, and uh, today... They ask for um, your Spirit's guidance and helping us understand what you really are trying to say here. And uh, I know the words have spoken 2,000 years ago, but they're very applicable to us today, and, and especially what we face in, within our church and the culture we live in. So I pray, God, that you help us to uh, glean from the passage what you want us to take away. And uh, just ask you, too, to just be with the wives right now, as they're probably also in the midst of uh, a church service in their own way out on that retreat and that camp. And I just pray, Lord, that they come back encouraged, strengthened, and refreshed, and ready to take on the, the responsibility of family once again on Monday. So, uh, yeah, we just pray for a great time together. In Christ's name, amen. So I decided to take a break from the book of John this week just because of the unique situation with the women being gone, and I wanted to not have them miss out on the on the teaching just because they're so accustomed to the book as well. And use this opportunity to uh, just do another passage just for, for pleasure and enjoyment. So before we dive in, I want you to picture the scene here. Um, in verse 1, Jesus has been invited to a dinner in chapter 14. He's been invited to a dinner at a leading Pharisee's house. And it happens to be a Sabbath day. So it already gives you a sense of the tension it would be in the home, knowing the Pharisee's reputation with Jesus. Uh, they had no love lost between them, and this is the, the hostile environment he's in. And it actually tells us in verse 1 that the Pharisees are watching him closely. So this is a dinner where he's invited, but they're watching him closely. They want to trap him and, and, and have reasons to get rid of him. But it also happened, unbeknownst to them, that Jesus was watching them closely as well. Um, as an invited guest, uh, he had watched other guests come to dinner. And he noticed that these men were intentionally choosing places of honor at the table. So guests were coming in, they could have chosen seats of less honor, but they were choosing seats where they could have uh, public recognition as being in places of power and prestige. So Jesus, seeing this, starts to speak a parable to teach them about a spiritual truth that they needed to grasp, and that was one about humility, one of humility. And he, and he told them to, you know, as, a, as an example of humility, why don't you guys uh, stop worrying about and looking for places of prestige and power? Uh, why don't you start inviting guests and, um, who are of no regard? 
people who are poor, crippled, and socially disfranchised, not close relatives and your close family and people who are wealthy. Um, so he, he says this to them in a parable. And then in, in 14, he says, if you have this attitude, this, this spirit of humility, he says in 14, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, this kind of uh, character trait within you is a, is a quality that will, will, will allow you to have eternal life. Now, Jesus, of course, was teaching this knowing that the Pharisees were not in. <laughs> they didn't possess this quality. So he's just a parable of, to condemn them in their lack of humility. And then one of the Pharisees listening totally misses it. He totally clues out that, that he's, not, he's talking against them. And he makes this comment in verse 15. He says, um, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So here Jesus condemns them, and this guy yells out, Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Meaning, thank you Jesus uh, for that teaching. Good thing we're in. We're the ones with humility. <laughs> so he's totally missed it. So Jesus has to respond in another parable. A parable which we'll look at today. It's important for us to grasp what he's teaching here. Because even though the parable was directed towards them, uh, we are also... Uh, we are also to take note of this as well. So the first thing I want you to notice about this, uh, this parable and this, this, uh, that Jesus gives is the character of the man hosting the party. Let's look at the character of the man hosting the party. He was one with authority. He was one who had authority. In verse 16, it says, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. Now at this point, he's just called a man, so you don't actually know sort of where he stands. But later in verse 21, you'll notice that as a slave comes back to report about what he found, he, the call, he says that he reported back to his master. So here we know he's a man of authority because he's a master. And later on in verse 21, he's called the head of the household. So he's, he's one of authority. He's, um, he's got slaves underneath him who report to him. He's the head of the house. He's not like subservient to anyone. And people serve him in this parable. So we know that this man was a man of power and authority. However, even though he was one of authority, we know he was one of great generosity. He was one of great generosity. Look in verse 16 again. He was giving a big dinner. Giving a big dinner. Um, this big dinner, uh, in some translations, might say big banquet. Okay? Now, this is not a snack. He's not providing a snack. He's not providing leftovers. He's not providing a simple luncheon. He's providing the main meal of the day, and it's de described as a big dinner, a big one. And this generosity is seen by the, the number of invited guests. It says that he threw, threw this big dinner for many, for many. Now, many is not defined yet here, but we can see as we go through the parable uh, that this was an unlimited amount of guests. I mean, it, he had room to accommodate as many as many were invited. So it was a limitless number, which means the guy had deep pockets. This man had deep pockets. He had a huge home. He could, he could provide enough food for as many who came, and uh, he clearly um, was very hospitable. So he was a man of authority, man of generosity, and he's a man who was intentional and very thoughtful. Look at verse 16 and verse 17 again. He says, a man was giving a big dinner. He invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who were invited, come now, for everything is ready. So come now, for everything is ready is the key phrase. He had prepared in advance. So he sent out the invitations, but he'd made lots of preparations. He'd been thoughtful and intentional. 
and he prepared this banquet and planned ahead, and he took some time to prepare properly. And these two he said so. Okay, so we've got we've spoken about then the, the man's character who owes the party. He's one of authority, one of generosity, one who's thoughtful and intentional. So that's who the man is hosting the party. And let's now look at the guests. What's interesting about these guests is two things. These guests, upon initial reception of the invitation, uh, chose to RSVP as they were coming. None of them initially declined. Did you see that? When, he said, when the master sent out his slave to go get the guests, he said to them, uh, by the way, come now for everything is ready now. So how did the master know who to approach? Those who had already said that they were available to come. If, if, the, if the guests had declined initially, then the slave wouldn't have gone to those decline, the people who didn't RSVP. But these, these guests had initially said, yes, we'll make time for this host and go to this dinner. So that's one thing that's interesting about these men. Secondly, with these guests, is that uh, they had ample amounts of time to clear their schedules to prepare for the banquet. If they were given a, a preliminary invitation in which they RSVP'd, they knew the date, they knew the time was coming, they, knew the, they likely knew the host for them to say yes, right? And here they are now with ample amounts of time to clear their schedule. So with all this being said, your, your, the expectation you would think now would be that Jesus would continue in this parable by describing how all these guests rush to the party. Right? They prepare, they've got lots of time to, to know what's coming. They've already RSVP'd, they're coming. So now you expect this mad rush after, to come to this wonderful banquet. But what we find actually is sadly the exact opposite. And verse 18 tells us this. But they all alike began to make excuses. They all began to make excuses. What we're going to see in these excuses is that they all had something in common. Each, in each case that we're about to see, they were all distracted by something else. They're all distracted, and they had to make a value judgment about what was more important in their life. What was, they had to make a value judgment on what was more important. Either this big dinner with this wonderful host, or a preoccupation with other things. And when you look at this list, you're going to see the exact same excuses are present within our culture as well to God's invitation. Because remember, this parable is a picture of God inviting people into his kingdom. It's an invitation of salvation to come to heaven. So again, this, this parable has a purpose that Jesus is teaching. So let's look at the excuses in verse 18 and in the, through 20. But they all began alike to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. The first guy was preoccupied with real estate. He bought a piece of land, and he wanted to go out and look at it. Now, that, what's interesting about that is this. I mean, Len, Len's perfect. We have a realtor uh, in, the, in the audience. How many people go and buy anything without looking at it first? Darcy just bought a home, I just bought a home. Uh, you know, Pat's renovating his house right now, but even when, when we bought your acreage, when you bought your new home, when we bought our new home, we all went and looked at it first. It's actually suicide, financially, uh, to go and purchase real estate without looking at it first. So the fact that this guy says, I bought a piece of land, it's already purchased, I want to go look at it, means that he's actually making a really invalid excuse, because the likelihood of, of him actually doing that earlier was very, very high. It would have been stupid for him not to do this. So actually, he, he, had, he actually had probably already looked at the land. 
He'd already done that, but he wanted to continue to admire what he already owned. So this was, would have been a huge slap in the face to the man of the house, the, the host of the party, because there was no urgency in him having to look at this land. It would have still been there after the banquet occurred. But this man was caught up in materialism. He was caught up in materialism, and his concern for wealth took precedence over the invitation to the banquet. Now, Jesus, on numerous occasions, spoke about the danger of wealth being a deterrent entering the kingdom of God. He actually said, in, in, in paraphrased words, it's a spiritual disadvantage for people with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, you've got to think about that when we consider older folks. But it's a spiritual disadvantage for people who enter the kingdom of God who are wealthy. I'll read you two passages just quickly. Matthew 19.24. Jesus said this in Matthew 19.24. Yes, I tell you that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In Luke 16.13, he says, You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and wealth at the same time. So Jesus is making it very obvious that wealth and entering the kingdom are very much in opposition to each other. It's interesting he's saying this at the Pharisees' table. Who, what are the Pharisees? What's one of the things they're known for? Their attraction to wealth. They, they, they were very good at getting rich. And so they loved money. They were known for loving money. But you know what? So are we. I want to read you a staggering article from the Toronto newspaper. Uh, regarding Canada, written April 9th, 2015. So I like this because it's recent, it's two years old, and uh, it's not any better. In fact, it's, I looked it up uh, early, later, um, earlier on. Apparently, it's even worse than what I'm saying here in this article. But this, this is a quote, word for word, from a newspaper in Toronto, one of the Toronto newspapers. A new study has found that Canada has, relative to income, seen the second highest increase in household debt among developed countries since the 2008 recession. The study found that Canada is second to Greece on this measurement. Now, you know what happened to Greece, right? Anyone watch the news? Okay. The report looked at the growth of household debt between 2007 and 2014. The report identified Canada as one of the seven countries vulnerable to a crisis caused by excessive consumer debt. Household debt in the country had risen to 155% of income in 2014, up from 133% reported seven years earlier. The report notes, compared with other households, highly leveraged ones are more sensitive to income shocks as a result of job loss, costly health problems, or increases in debt servicing costs. The 136-page study also finds that household debt levels in Canada are currently higher than those in the U.S. and the U.K. Now, let me give you a, a, a way of summarizing this passage, or this, this report. The fact that the household debt in the country has risen to 155% of income means that for every dollar earned, let's say you make 100 grand a year, you spent 155,000 in that same year. It's now, as of last month, <coughs> 169. Okay, and the, my last report I read was 164. So this is 155, I read 164, he's read 169, okay? So that means when you look at the average Okotokian, now we are in Alberta, which is higher than the Canada average. So that means when you look at everyone's house and everyone's quads and everyone's like, you know, trucks and Nissan Maximas and stuff like that, 
Um, that means that everybody has spent, on every, almost everyone you look at has spent 155% of their income earned. So if you make 50 grand, you spent 75. If you made 100, you spent 155. If you made 200, I mean, you get the idea, you, made, you spent 300 grand. Every dollar you make, you spend a buck 50. Exactly. Right? Now that's crazy. And that's the national, we're second in Greece. And so it's a Greece in the world. Now, here's the thing. Jesus says, here's one of the excuses for not entering the kingdom. You're too focused on materialism because when my offer of salvation comes to you, you're too busy worrying about the things that you own. And you're so focused on those things. Isn't it interesting that what Jesus predicted as a, as a, at a stumbling block to entering the kingdom to the Pharisees is the exact same issue we're facing now. So Okotoks especially isn't a really, really uh, crazy thing. And that's why in our church it's so important for us. And our church is not like this, by the way. We are, the, we are, actually, I, we are actually different than this uh, um, as a general whole. Uh, all of us are responsible with, for, finan for financial um, stability and, and, and actually stewardship. And uh, although we may have like some mortgage debt, uh, we're carrying, uh, we're very responsible with the way we handle money. And that's, as a Christian witness of what makes us different. Isn't that study just talking about consumer debt? Yeah. So it's not, that's not mortgages. No, that's not mortgages, yeah. But we're, mortgages aren't uh, a, a debt that would be considered consumer debt. That's good. How survive five years like I agree. Well, that's the point. They survive this way because 2.1 interest rates and 3.3% interest rates, and so they these people borrow, use our line of credit, and get they'll, they'll buy RSPs and things like that, investment 5%, and then because the interest rates are 2%, they uh, they make money, but then they're banking on the future because they don't know what's going if they're going to lose their jobs and all these types of things, and now they've got all of this uh, debt deal. But again, it's. Uh, a lot of people in this community are stressed out. And it's a distraction to enter the kingdom because they're so busy focusing, they can't sleep at night focusing on the money they owe. And God's saying, I've got to call out to you to come to me and be rescued in your spirit. Let's look at the second, uh, second excuse, verse 19. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Well, just like the real estate guys, it's highly unlikely this guy purchased his oxen without looking them over and testing them first. But even if he hadn't, there are many days he could have chosen to test out his new animals. He didn't have to do it on the same day as the banquet. However, for this man, his priority and his preoccupation, I should say, was work. Was work. He bought five oxen, he wanted to test them all. Again, uh, the, his identity was found in work, and the, uh, God's offer of salvation to him was of no importance because he was so much involved in, in that area of his life. Now this, of course, would tie, in, tie into materialism. If you are an Okotokian and you owed 155% on every dollar earned, work would become a consuming thing because you're, you have to make those payments and you have to get rid of that debt. So again, I think our community can relate to this, so that we make work an idol, and we make work something that would distract us from entering the kingdom of God. So much so that we would ignore God's offer of salvation. The third excuse is found in verse 20. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. This man was preoccupied with family, or preoccupied with love. 
Now, what's interesting about this guy, uh, in, in the Jerusalem culture, in Jewish culture, a man was given one year off, one year off from military service when they were newlyweds. Okay? And he also was given the same time off for travel for business, Deuteronomy 24, verse 5. Okay, so he's freshly married. By the law, he's given one year of no business and one year of no military service. What's the guy got in his hands? Tons of free time. He's a newlywed and God says, I want you to invest in your wife and here's a year off to invest in her and get your family going in a strong way. Wouldn't that be awesome within the Christian circles if we still had that? Okay. It would be amazing. Um, <clears throat> now here's what's crazy. This guy is totally free. He was allowed to bring his wife to the banquet if he wanted. <laughs> there, were, God never, the, the, there was no provisions against him in terms of uh, uh, attending social engagements. The only provision, or the, the only thing that prohibited him would have been work in military service, and he's got that as no excuse. But what does he do? He says, no, no thank you to the host. I don't want to come to your banquet. I am more interested in spending time with my new wife. Now, it's not that marriage was wrong or marriage was bad. It was designed by God. But his idea of this man here was that his marriage is going to supersede uh, taking precedence of God's call of salvation to his life. He was more preoccupied with love and family. And it's interesting because in, after this parable, Luke, Jesus in Luke 14, 26, the very next verse says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters... And even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Again, hating the family here is to, not the, to, to detest the family, but to, the word hate means to prefer one over the other. Right? All of us in here prefer the Oilers over the Flames. I know that for a fact. And we'll forgive you later. You'll yeah. Survive. Yeah. yeah. So you know, it's, a, it's a preference, right? And Jesus is saying here, you can't love your wife more than me. You can't love your wife more than this invitation to the kingdom of God. And it, here's the application for us in Okotoks again. God will not compete with family. He doesn't compete with family. But for many, the desire to be loved by another human being has caused many to reject the most important offer of love of all. And that's God's for their spiritual lives. Let's just say at this moment, though, if we, as we go back to the parable, that it's important to recognize one thing. See, the reason for these guests' failure to participate in the dinner party was not because of a lack of invitation. It was because of their own uh, rejection of the host's offer. They made excuses for why they couldn't go, but it wasn't because their, their lack of participation was not God's uh, choosing of a select few and not others. It was because of the get, invited guest's rejection of his offer. It was, their, it was the reason they didn't get, didn't get into the banquet was because of their choices, not because of God's choice that that would be this, this, the case. It was on their own free will that they chose not to attend. The decision to not enter the kingdom, it was on them. Now it's, notice, it's interesting to notice that the response from the host to the rejection was that of anger. You see that in verse 21. And the slave came back and reported this to his master, and the head of the household became angry. Became angry. God's, well, you know, in the, in the parable, the, the man's response was not indifference. 
He wasn't even happy. He wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't happy about it. Right? He was absolutely ticked off that he, his, this offer of love, this offer, of, this gift of this major banquet was rejected by all these invited guests. Again, this is really important when we contrast the parable to the spiritualities today. God's offer to those who are to come to him and come into heaven and, and his offer of salvation, God is, is deeply distressed over the people's rejection of this, this offer. He's angry about it. He's not indifferent, and he's not, there's no glory to him when people refuse to come into the kingdom. Well, we see the result of his anger towards this rejection in verse 24. He says, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. I mean, the, the, the result of rejection is they're not going to enter the kingdom. They're not going to come to the banquet. They're not going to go to the kingdom. So there is judgment on those who refuse to come in the kingdom. They weren't even going to get a morsel of a taste, right? No leftovers, not even a little uh, to-go bag. They won't taste a single thing of that dinner. Now again, in context, we know he's speaking to the Pharisees, Israel's leaders, who should have known and responded to the Messiah when he came. They taught about the Messiah, they taught about resurrection, they knew the law, and they knew about the Messiah to come, and hoped for the Messiah to come. But they didn't expect the Messiah like Jesus. And so when he was making that statement in verse 24, he was speaking out against the, the Pharisees. So because of their rejection, he turned to a different group of people. A different group of people. Let me pick that up in 21. He said, uh, the slave came back and reported to his master, and, the, and the, house, the head of the household became angry and said to the slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, and the blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out onto the highways and along the hedges, and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. We see the master's heart here, right? We see God's heart. He wanted the outsiders to come into the kingdom. He didn't care about social status. He didn't care about distinctions. He didn't care about which ethnic groups. It was people who were poor, crippled, blind and lame, and out into the, the highways and along the hedges. He was calling anybody and anybody into the kingdom, into this banquet. All he cared about was one single thing. He just, he just says, I want them to come in so that my house may be filled. Verse 23. I want my house to be filled. That's the master's heart. The banquet was going to go ahead. And nothing or no one was going to stop this banquet. But there was a way in which the head of the house wanted his slaves to invite these guests. See, they weren't to ask them to meek, like meekly to come in to the, to the banquet. They weren't to physically restrain them by force and force them there. In verse 23, he says, I want you to compel them to come in. I want you to compel them to come in. So their invitation to come to this banquet was one of strong persuasion it was, and it was to carry a sense of desire and urgency. Now, this is really important for us, because if I were to say to you, um, have you ever heard anybody that you've not agreed with in certain certain topic of life, you listen to them, and they've given you a compelling argument? Right? And if you've had a mindset towards something one way, and then you hear this guy, with a, and you have an open mind, and you think, that's a compelling argument. I've never thought about that. What are you saying? You're saying, hmm, he convinced me 
of the way I'm thinking to think of in another way because his argument was one of persuasion. And it, can, it carried a sense of, of authority and urgency, right? Jesus is saying here, uh, when he's saying here in this parable to his slave, uh, regarding the, the master slave, when you go out into the, into the fields and into the hedges and talk to the lame, compel them. Give them, a, give them a message about me in this banquet that has a sense of strong persuasion and carries a sense of urgency. Don't be meek in your invitation. Don't be forceful invitation, but be compelling them. Be, be, be persuasive in, in, in your invitation to them. Now, I want to say a lot about this, um, but we'll speak about it more in the lessons. But I think as Christians, we're generally way too passive. Actually, I think as Canadians, we're way too passive. We want to say sorry about everything. And if, if we went up to someone and someone gave us an, 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 uh, an apologetic response to our gospel invitation, usually because of our politeness, at that, if they rejected us, we would just say, okay, well, I tried and move on. That's not what compelling is. If you talk to somebody and they give you a no, a flat out no, or reject you, you don't just stop there. You can compel them. You can say, yeah, I understand why you think this way, but let me help you think in another way. Again, one of our goals as Christians and, and, and commands from Jesus here is to be compelling and persuasive in our defense of the gospel. We just take no way too easily as an answer. And uh, there's a way to do it, which we're going to talk about in lessons here. Well, let's look at the lessons right now. And I'm going to suggest there's four. There's more than four, but I want to give you the four main ones from this parable. The first lesson is this. The way to heaven is through invitation only. <laughs> the way to heaven is through invitation only. Um, pretty obvious in here, right? A man was giving a banquet in verse 16 and invited many. The man was the initiator of the banquet. There was nothing these men or women in this parable did to get, in, to get invited. It wasn't, it wasn't their morality or their ethics or their social background or the rituals they did in the church that got them in. He went out to rich and arrogant, to lame and poor, to Jewish people, to Gentile people, there was no social distinctions or anything they could have done morality-wise to get invited. The host's invitation was strictly from them to the people. Again, parallel today, the way to heaven today is through God's invitation only. Um, and the number one thing we face in our culture, or that at least I face in my evangelism with people, is that everyone's a good person. Man, it's tough to talk to people in Okotoks, and they're all good people. I've, never, I've only heard one person in the last few years actually say that they thought that they were a bad person and going to hell. One. Everybody thinks they're awesome, they're good, and their good outweighs their bad. And they bank, or they bank on their rituals of the church they belong to, whatever. And clearly from this passage, none of these guys got in because of their own morality or the rituals that they followed in the church. It was an invitation from the host which is God. Second thing I want to say as lessons is uh, uh, preoccupation with materialism, work, and human relationships are reasons why people reject God's invitation. Right? A preoccupation with materialism, work, and relationships are some reasons why people reject, reject God's invitation. Again, after reading that Toronto Star article, or, or Toronto, I shouldn't say Star, I don't know which newspaper it was anymore, but... Um, after reading that uh, article, you can see that the, the, the natural tendencies of, uh, of Canadians and, and Albertans and Okotokians to have these three things get in the way of God's offer to them. 
The third lesson that I want you to miss is when we share the gospel message, we need to be compelling in our conversation. So, again, compelling is to be strongly persuasive, but not forceful. I'll give you two passages to help you with how to think when you're going to be compelling. Because you might think, well, how do I be persuasive without forceful? There's two things you want to consider. The first one comes from um, uh, Colossians 4, 5, and 6. He says here, Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech be with grace. What does grace mean? Undeserved favor. Undeserved favor. As though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. To your speech, in your compelling, as a compelling speech, you want to be gracious, give them undeserved favor, but you want it to, your speech to be seasoned with salt. A seasoning, a salt's a seasoning thing, it's a flavorful thing. So you want your conversation to be flavorful. You don't want to be, con, uh, you know, um, uh, like a, a dork in the way you speak. You want to be someone who adds flavor to a conversation. And so, um, one of the things that I, I take away in my own and my own thoughtfulness when I'm, when I'm doing evangelism is this. When I give my message, am I personally, by the way I presented it, the stumbling block to them rejecting Jesus? Or is the message that I proclaim the stumbling block to the, the, them rejecting Jesus? See, if they reject the truth, I'm okay. Because I'm not the issue, the truth is. But if people reject the message because of my presentation, they automatically go, oh, there's one of those stupid Christians again who's so blah, 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 and they fill in the adjectives the way you want. So again, if I get rejected because I proclaim the truth, that's one thing. If I get rejected because I'm a dork in the way I present it, that's another. And I would encourage you to think about that. When you go to speak to people, ask yourself this question. Am I a, is the truth presented in a way that they'll reject that over and above the way I do it? And that's a key thing. Uh, another great verse, First uh, Peter three fifteen to sixteen. Always be ready to answer everyone who asks you to explain about the hope you have, but answer in a gentle way and with respect. Keep uh, a conscious, keep a clear conscience, so that those who speak evil of your good life in Christ will be made ashamed. Again, the um, key there is gentleness and respectfulness. So you're going to be gracious in your speech. You're going to have seasoned with salt. You're going to be gentle and respectful. Again, you don't tell people their ideas are stupid. There's a way of revealing to them that their ideas are stupid without telling them they're stupid. Mm-hmm. Right? That's, that's the, there's always a way to, to present that truth. And we can talk about ways to do that in the, in the discussion here. But um, those are some key passages on how to be compelling uh, and not um, revolting in the way we do evangelism. All right, there's one more lesson here. The fourth lesson is this. God's offer of salvation is given to everyone and not limited to a select few. That's so important. God's offer of salvation is given to everyone, not limited to a select few. Nowhere in this passage did God selectively choose some for salvation. It was given to the Pharisees. It was given to the, the lame, the poor, the crippled. It was given to the people like, who are likely Gentiles in this passage. The people, probably, the people who are probably Gentiles in this passage are in verse 23. The people on the highways and along the hedges. But even if it wasn't, there's no social distinctions made here, even if all of this was contained within Israel. Every single person was given an invitation. And the reason why people didn't show up to the banquet 
was purely their rejection of the host's offer. It had nothing to do with God being so, uh, selective. And for, for those of us in our church, this is not an, an, an issue, but there are certain theologies within the Christian circles that would teach that this is absolutely nonsense. However, within Jesus' teaching is clear here that the, the invitation is, is not, because, uh, not to a select few. And in fact, his emotional response shows anger when people reject him. So some would say, well, he's actually, when he chooses a few, it's for his glory. So that he can, uh, you know, he can, it, he, it gives him glory and makes him look majestic when he only chooses a few for salvation. Not according to Jesus. Jesus says, actually, it makes God angry when people reject his message. And so, again, this is a major, major theological lesson that we have to grasp.